0: If you recall last episode, we're going to continue on the same theme, looking into the tension and the relationship of organizing and the law. When does an individual or a group organize? When does an individual or a group choose to sue? When do you organize after you sue winning or losing a case? These answers are not all clear. They're not mutually exclusive. Sometimes strategies require nourishing each other. So the interplay of these two central strategies, which are themselves quite complicated, is interesting, and it gives us a trajectory for understanding strategy and theory behind legal questions. And as you know, this podcast is us venturing out into the legal landscape. To what extent are legal battles rooted in community? What resources do communities have to combat larger, richer social interests, and groups, and individuals? So this week we start with Mika Mai from Goldblatt Partners in Toronto. She represented A.B. period, or who she refers to as Abby, a transgender youth impacted by the proposed Ford government, that's the Provincial Conservative Government in Ontario, changes to the sex ed curriculum. She talks about that case and its progress before the Human Rights Tribunal of Ontario. Next we turn to David Bush, a workers rights organizer. He will discuss the widely influential 15 in fairness campaign, fighting for a $15 minimum wage, and how communities mobilized and used organizing to get results from the legislature move the social consensus, and how they hope to continue to keep these acquired gains.
1: Now here's Mikama. I think that law has its limits and and direct action is a very important strategy to be to be utilizing. We we just saw today there was global news printed that the at the convention this weekend the conservatives passed a motion to debate whether gender identity theory whether to support gender identity theory or whether it's legitimate. Even calling it theory, gender identity theory, is just shocking and deeply disturbing. And so we're, even if we're, I'm going to talk about our our sex ed challenge, but, you know, I worry, even if we are successful, are they going to go and amend the, the code, the human rights code? I don't trust this government that even if we have successes in legal proceedings that, you know, they can turn around and, and make those changes. So I think there's there's value in, in using the courts and the, the tribunal system because it's another avenue, it's another voice to add and support, and it forces an answer in, in a different kind of way than, you know, being on the streets also forces an answer. but. You know they have 21 day deadlines, and they have you know these these requirements that they have to meet, and I think that's a useful pressure point to use, but it's it's certainly limited, and it needs to be balanced with um, other kinds of strategies. So, as I mentioned, uh, we are our law firm is representing. 11-year-old trans student. We are one of four cases that are proceeding against the conservative government's decision to retreat to the 1998 sex ed curriculum. There is two judicial reviews that have been joined together by the CCLA, the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, and then the elementary teachers, and that is proceeding in um, January. And then Justice for Children and Youth, uh, one of the legal clinics, Is also has a challenge at the Human Rights Tribunal on behalf of two high school students. The high school curriculum has not changed, but they have made arguments around (laughs) the government statements in the media and the impact that even the elementary changes will have on high school students. But our case uh, is at the Human Rights Tribunal. We have 10 days of hearing booked for the end of January and into February, (laughs) so we'll be proceeding there. In terms of kind of some background about the sex ed curriculum. 1998 was um, where we had a very bare-bones sex ed curriculum. It basically just talks about puberty, some physical changes. It's very slim. There's no mention of LGBT issues or identities. Then after, you know, a lot of pressure on the government, there was years of consultations that happened and in 2010, there was a plan to implement these very significant changes to the whole health and physical education curriculum. In the end, because of conservative uh, pressures, the sex ed portion of the curriculum didn't actually get implemented. So they made these changes around the health and physical education curriculum, but they kept the 1998 details in there. So we, we had some more inclusive language around, you know, teachers have to teach diversity and inclusion is important, but the mandatory language that has to be taught to children, that remained from 1998. And so, and in that mandatory language, LGBT issues weren't touched. Then 2015 comes around, and finally the Liberals implement what had been already drafted from 2010, the sex ed curriculum, and they they put that into place. So that's the first time that we see mandatory language that talks about gender identity, talks about different types of families, different types of bodies. It's not, in our view, age-inappropriate in any way, and that the the language that conservatives have used in, in promoting that suggests that somehow there is something wrong about LGBT folks, that to learn about us is, you know, going to contaminate our children or something. And it's really the language, you know, talks about respecting difference, and there are visible and invisible differences. Yeah, but I don't want my children to learn, but I don't have. So children to learn about that. So that's what we saw in 2015, and so what they have done in 2018. So it's you know now in place is they've retreated back to the 2010 curriculum, which has the 1998 language. So there is some improved optional language around it that talks about teachers should teach in an inclusive manner, but when it actually comes to what is has to be taught to children about sex ed. That is still no mention of LGBT issues. It's There's no consent. There's no cyberbullying. All of that is, is straight from 1998. So that kind of distinction, that history becomes important in how the government has tried to respond to, to our case. So I'll get into that in, in a moment. But So we filed a human rights application on behalf of AB. We're using initials. We've taken to calling her Abby for AB. We argued that our primary position is it's direct discrimination contrary to the code because of the wholesale removal of all lgbt issues and now our children are only being taught about two types of bodies and and i think you know a useful comparison can be that if if what we were talking about was that the change was, now we're only going to learn about boys' bodies, I don't think it would be a question, but suddenly for folks who are cisgendered and for a conservative government who doesn't believe in gender identity theory, when we're, at, when we're talking about a broader definition of gender, it's okay to leave that out. So, so that's our, our primary position, is that on its face it is discriminatory, but our alternative argument is that it's constructive discrimination that even though there isn't anything explicit that says, you know, being gay is wrong, that the impact of the changes will have an adverse impact on LGBT students, and there is a wealth of scientific evidence out there. And that's why the changes were implemented in 2015 in the first place. Is because we know that there are very real harms to students and that broad language of inclusivity of diversity does not have the same impact as when we're talking about specific anti-transphobia anti-homophobia policies have much more beneficial impacts on students and that so there's going to be an adverse impact and that the government can't show undue hardship who are they going to say has been harmed by talking about LGBT students in, in class. So that's the primary substantive arguments. When we're talking about disadvantage, we're going to be pointing to the fact that Abby doesn't get to learn about her body anymore, that the, she would also be more likely to be misgendered by her peers, bullied by her peers, who will also not learn about her body in different types of bodies. And that the messaging that Abby has received is that there's something wrong with her that if teachers teach her about her body that they can be disciplined because well, brings back in, but they have the snitch line and this reporting website, so that threatening to teachers also communicates a message to Abby who follows the news and and you know certainly her peers will have heard this either on the news themselves or in you know their homes that there is something wrong. So those are the the main uh, types of disadvantages that that we'll be pointing to. And then in terms of remedy, we have asked for a a declaration that the change was contrary to the Human Rights Code, that the 2015 curriculum should stay in place for the remainder of this year because they're now undergoing consultations for a new curriculum for the, the following school year. And so that, and in that new curriculum that it must be code-compliant and has to teach about LGBT folks. And then we've also asked for general damages. The, the government has responded in a somewhat baffling but, on the other hand, kind of expected response. Uh, they've said, no, look, we have all this inclusive language around the 1998 curriculum. Teachers can, can teach whatever they want to teach. It's status quo. So, you know, it's, it's kind of shocking because you just made these drastic changes and you want us to believe you made them for no reason, that, <laughs> that the idea is, no, in the classroom, it's going to be the same. But on, on the other hand, that's probably the strongest legal position to be arguing because there is some, some basis to say, yeah, teachers, they have their own professional obligations. So there are these other policy obligations under the Education Act, et cetera, to teach in an inclusive manner but that doesn't fit with what they've said in the media and that they made these changes in the first place and that the changes they have made, they're not, they're not random, they're very deliberate. And so even in the, even though there is you know, now this optional language that's somewhat more inclusive, they've also taken out mentions of LGBT folks in the optional teacher prompts. Mm-hmm. So you know, there was this whole section that talks about gender identity and that's just supposed to help teachers, you know, explain this concept to their students, and they've taken out that example out of of the the language. So it's not some kind of haphazard, arbitrary changes. They're they're very intentional, and so we think, you know, we're hoping to really emphasize that at the tribunal and show how there's, to to question this argument that, no, no, teachers can still teach however they want. The other thing that, that we'll be pointing to is the snitch line and to say that if that was really the case, then if the government was going, you know, they've kind of twisted their words since and said, no, this is just a consultation process. But if that was the case, you know, they would, they would then, along with saying, if you have concerns, they would say, but teachers still need to teach in line with the code. They would kind of offer reassuring statements, but they haven't done that. They've just said, you know, this is age inappropriate. We want to develop appropriate curriculum. If you have concerns, here's our website, here's Ontario College of Teachers' website, these are the different levers that you can pull in order to to report your teacher. And we're not seeing any kind of reassuring language along with that. The other uh, position that the government has made is that our remedy is overbroad, that what we are effectively asking for is mandamus to say this, not only that this is code non-compliant, but you have to teach the 2015 curriculum. In response to that point, we think we'll, we've pointed out that the, the language in the code is quite broad. That actually, tribunals have the opportunity to order a response to do anything to promote compliance with the code. They're not actually constrained the way that the government has attempted to argue that, that they are, and that there are other examples of where you'll have a single applicant but the the remedy offered is for the uh, entire group that the individual is within. So one of those cases was XY, I believe it's from uh, 2012, and in that case it dealt with um, previous requirement that if you wanted to change your gender identity on your um, birth certificate, you had to have uh, surgery first. And they found that that was uh, discriminatory, that surgery shouldn't be required, And that was not only for X, Y, but also for anybody else who was trying to make that change. So it's not an uncommon thing for the tribunal to do. And so that's how we'll be getting at that point. In terms of where things are at right now, as I said, we've got the hearing dates in January and February. We're fighting with the government over disclosure obligations, figuring out different experts and who's going to be qualified as an expert They've also been you know, throwing up any block that they can. So they asked for a deferral request pending the judicial reviews in court. We were successful in saying that these are uh, different cases, different applicants. Ours is the only applicant who is a transgender elementary student. The other cases, it's the elementary teachers and it's a queer parent. And that they're, they're primarily dealing with the charter. Our case is the code. And so even if a, a decision is reached, that's positive in terms of the curriculum in court that there would still be issues left to deal with at the tribunal because we have a, a different applicant. So we've been able to proceed that across that hurdle. They're also just throwing up other roadblocks, saying, trying to strike out sections of the reply. We've been successful in, in showing that they were not new issues. So that's kind of, I think that's the, about where we're at right now. Yeah. <laughs>
0: That was Mika Amai. And now, let's turn to David Bush on the Fight for 15 and fairness.
2: Okay, so I'm gonna talk about the Fight for 15 campaign, but I'm not gonna do that justice in 15 minutes. So I'm just gonna talk a little about some of the goals of that campaign, and then what I think are some of the key lessons going forward under the current context. So that campaign, as many of you may know, was launched in April 2015 in response to the Changing Workplaces Review that was put forward by the Liberal government in January of that year. Now, where the Changing Workplaces Review came from was it was a concession, a throwaway concession by the Liberals in response to the Fair Wages Now campaign, which was advocating for a $14 minimum wage and really pushing uh, on issues of precarious work. Um, so that campaign in 2013, 2014 won a minimum wage increase from 10.25 to 11. They won indexation, which we still have, and it also won the promise of a changing workplaces review. Obviously, this is a, a, a liberal tactic of like, okay, this is just you can have this review; it's going to go nowhere. <clears throat> See you later. And so, this campaign was relaunched uh, as the Fight for 15 and Fairness campaign in April of that year. There was 26 demands which covered the uh, Labor Relations Act and the Employment Standards Act put forward by the campaign as part of that review. One of those was the $15 minimum wage, which was excluded from the review, and the Liberals said for, you know, right up until they actually brought in a $15 minimum wage, said, "No, no, no, We don't want to hear anything about the minimum wage that's outside of the scope of the review. The goals of the campaign were, as I can see them, one, achieve legislative change. Actually treat uh, the Changing Workplaces Review as collective bargaining for workers without unions. And to actually go into that process with that mindset, to organize workers, to build their power, to actually get a legislative change. And the idea is like, you actually want to achieve victories because a, victories build confidence and it leads to escalation. So the second part of that was, the second goal I think was to build public support for those demands, i.e. on the minimum wage, on things like fair scheduling laws, on paid sick days, which would be unprecedented, on equal pay for equal work, to build actual public support for those demands. And in the early days of those campaigns, like if you were to actually go out and talk to workers you know, do the petitioning. There was a lot of resistance initially because the ideas most people have about the economy and the way it works is if you raise the minimum wage 30%, prices are going to go skyrocket and we're going to be no further ahead. Or jobs are going to close down, etc. And these were the constant ideological battle that like the campaign had to engage in to win public support and why do we want to win public support because this is not about changing politicians minds it's about creating pressure uh, on politicians to move to where we want them to to be not about changing policymakers minds don't care about them whatever (laughs) and part of that to do that, to build public support, you need to build the confidence and capacity of workers to actually fight for these demands. And that means developing leadership, that means winning people into action, not just to the idea, but to actually go out and carry these ideas forward in their own communities, defend those ideas, uh, and become leaders in their own community. And the more you do that, the more confidence, the more capacity, the, you have the ability to go f- further. And the other sort of goal, I would say, would be to unite union and non-union workers. Twenty-eight percent of workers in Ontario are unionized. Everybody else doesn't have union protection, and so bridging that gap, i.e., The Changing Workplaces Review, because it was reviewing both the Labor Relations Act and the Employment Standards Act, was a unique opportunity to actually see these two struggles together, to actually increase the minimum wage, increase the floor of employment standards so unions could actually set the bar higher. One of the issues that unions have when they go into bargaining is as they increase their demands. And if they have a giant separation from what you're able to achieve in your union contract to what the Employment Standards Act is, what most people's experience on workplace rights are, if there's a huge gap, it's easy for employers to marshal that gap and say, we actually can't give you more. Look at everybody else. Employers can try to really hammer the union in the public because there's a massive gap. Like if I'm fighting for 10 paid sick days or seven paid sick days in my workplace, but 70% of people don't have any paid sick days, well that's a problem. Now when you actually have paid sick days for everybody, at least a bare minimum, it makes it easier to get more in your union contract. Those were the goals. And the tactics and strategies, and I, I can't really do this justice, but we're really focused on those goals of winning public support. So it was out using a, a, a legislative petition, going out, creating worker-to-worker contact, Building support one person at a time for these ideas, tabling, uh, doing workshops about like knowing your rights at work, organizing protests, organizing creative actions that get media attentions, getting people to write op-eds or letters to the editor, you know, even uh, linking those demands into strike demands or like union contract negotiations, what's happened, there's also strikes that happened out of this, and then also engaging in, in lobbying. All those things, all the different kinds of tools you can use in community organizing, were used in the effort to sort of build public support. And the idea, overwhelmingly, was to shift the political train in the province. At the beginning of the campaign, zero political parties supported those issues. Then the NDP was won over, which is a big shift because they did not even support a $14 minimum wage when it was on the table by movements. They supported a $12 minimum wage.
0: Um,
2: so they supported elements of the campaign, although not everything. Uh, the liberals eventually were pushed over because they were in a political fight for their life and there was a lot of pressure because what happened was a minimum wage, like polling uh, like in year, at the end of year one and in, in year two of the campaign, It's like starting in 2017, polling showed about 66% of people in the province supported a $15 minimum wage, which was a big, big shift. And so that's why they caved on including the minimum wage in that legislation and then actually mirroring having a $15 minimum wage. Last year, about exactly a year ago, on November uh, 22nd, we won Bill 148, which was not everything that the campaign had asked for we campaigned on having 7 paid sick days there was 2 paid sick days there was a like a fair scheduling law that did not look like the scheduling provisions that we were fighting for at all a whole bunch of things but a step a big step it was what was in what was in that bill was a 30% increase in the minimum wage what was in that bill was paid sick days which was the first we would be the first jurisdiction in this country to have paid sick days. 1.6 million people got uh, personal emergency leave days that didn't have them before. So there's a whole bunch of good things that came out of that. Um, I'm not going to go into it, we can talk about it. So I'm just going to go quickly over what I think the lessons of that process are and then where things are at now and then going forward. And I think the first lesson I will say is that workers were at the center of this campaign. It's not like people like me, even though I'm a worker. It wasn't people in agencies. It wasn't, you know, union staffers. It wasn't policy wonks. It wasn't like lawyers, God forbid. (laughs) At the center of that campaign, it was actual workers, and they were the ones setting the pace, setting the agenda. And it was workers, especially through the Workers Action Center, which is a membership-based organization for non-unionized workers in in Toronto, but other workers as well, and people often ask where these demands come from. Where did those list of 26 demands come from? That was workers, uh, reflecting workers' experience and workers setting those demands for many months around the Workers' Action Center and saying, you know, we want to have demands that are bold enough to inspire people to fight, big enough that we actually get out of our seats and people in our communities will also get out of their seats and actually fight for this a real substantive change but also realistic enough where we know we can actually achieve some victories. So kind of trying to find that sweet spot. And that, again, wasn't grafted on to the movement from the outside, but it was organically produced through workers inside that movement. And there was also, at that core of that are, you know, it's not people like me, it's not white dudes at the center of this movement, even though I'm talking here. No one else wanted to talk to lawyers. So, but, but it, it, was, it was workers of color and women workers as leaders of that campaign, and not token. Those were the people setting the agenda. They were providing the ideological framework, the intellectual capacity of the movement, coming up with the strategies and tactics of the given moment. Those were the workers doing that heavy lifting. And without, without that, that, the campaign would be nothing. So the second lesson is worker's power is key to actually making any kind of substantive reform. There's things that we did that were sort of seem like any, anyone can do, like, uh, like going in and, and lobbying or signing a petition. And there's ways you can do those kinds of activity that are different. And, but if you have a framework where the worker's power is the actual key to winning a reform, when you go into lobby, you're not just trying to convince a politician to change their mind. You're trying to show them that you have power, that you have community support, that you are using that as a mobilizing tactic and a way to reach new people in your community. And these are the ways in which you approach things like also using a petition. Right When people sign, tens of thousands of people signed a petition, I do not expect when the government gets a petition, whether they're a liberal government, an NDP government, a conservative government, to get a stack of petitions, they'll be like, oh my God, people feel like this, we're going to change our mind. I think that they will feel pressure, but what makes it more impactful is when you use the petition to actually go out and talk to people and then build up a contact list, build up a way to follow through or follow up with those workers and actually activate them into the campaign, give them the tools that they need to organize in their own communities and networks. And so I think that was really super important. Okay, the third lesson I would say was keep fighting. The law is what the law does. Like I don't believe in the law, but it exists. But the law is what it does. We won a $15, uh, like $14 minimum wage, won a whole bunch of improvements that took effect this past January, what did Tim Hortons do within five days? Well, they announced all sorts of cuts, uh, attacks on workers. It was a out and out ideological warfare on on work on workers newly won rights, trying to demoralize workers at every turn. The idea that like just because you have it written in law does not mean it actually exists for. These workers, especially workers who cannot use unions or to actually enforce their workplace rights where they're out there on their own. That means you actually have to keep organizing and you need to be able to enforce your victories, otherwise you can't actually defend them in the long term and you can't actually go for more. If we can't defend the things that we won from from going from written law to actually being utilized, then there's no way we can get more. And so the Tim Hortons required a massive response. It was uh, lots of protests. We organized multiple provincial, even national days of action, to push back on Tim Hortons to make them an example. To make them an example for other employers. Like, if you fuck with workers on this scale, we're gonna. F- uh, sorry, I shouldn't. Even- uh, yeah, we're going. We're going to show you, and we're going to make you deeply unpopular. So my my mom is is a conservative Tory. She lives in a Tory riding, Jim Wilson, her, his riding. And uh, my mom, is so she's like, whatever, Tory. And I knew that we were winning within the first couple of weeks when all her old lady friends got together and they went out to McDonald's instead of going to Tim Hortons, which I normally go to because, oh yeah, Tim Hortons is bad, they like treat their workers Poorly. And I was like, oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> so, I think that it's, it shows you that you can have an impact. Obviously, it would be better if there was like a step further where unions actually put the resources into actually organizing Tim Horton's coffee shops or especially Tim Horton's distribution centers, but that's a different story. <laughs> okay, the other lesson, what I would say, is building broad alliances. You need to be able to build broad alliances if you're trying to achieve like, broad reforms, aka what the campaign did was it actually built, um, used its 26 demands and actually invited other groups who uh, could see themselves in those campaigns to take them, focus on the ones that were relevant and then use them to dig deeper in their own community so we, as a broad campaign, could reach wider. Healthcare workers really focused on things like paid sick days and doctor's notes. And so the Decent Work and Health Network was formed and used the campaign demands that were relevant to them to build a wide network Within the healthcare community, that has been extremely important, especially now as uh, Doug Ford is trying to roll back paid sick days. Faith groups, the same thing. Unions, the legal community, student groups—all of these different groups and a number of like geographical groups use the campaign demands to build into their community. But we did this not by broadening our demands, keep adding demands to add allies, rather trying to invite allies to see the links and then use them to build in their communities. Because we were effective when we were focused on our issues. It allowed us to create new voices and new frameworks of understanding uh, the campaign demands. So there's uh, a climate caucus in the campaign which sees low-wage jobs as climate jobs because they're low-carbon jobs, right? So we're talking about in the climate movement, a just transition away from petrochemical jobs and retraining and retooling, but the other side of that is also actually to have a framework of understanding people who work in the service industry, hotels, restaurants. Those (laughs) jobs are relatively low carbon jobs and if we want to encourage the creation of those jobs, we need to raise wages and working conditions. It was a really actually kind of interesting framework that was developed by people who, who came from that kind of framework. Okay, the next sort of uh, lesson I would say was, uh, and this one I think is especially important right now under Ford, is lead with the issues. The election of Ford signaled a huge shift, uh, It signaled uh, all sorts of employer groups and individual employers kind of came out of the woodworks and were really like chomping at the bit because they knew what was gonna happen. They knew that there was gonna be a rollback and that they would be free to attack workers' rights, uh, enforcement was cut all these bad, bad things. But we also saw that Ford won with 41% of the vote. There was a significant chunk of Tories, voters, who rejected, for whatever reason, rejected the liberals, weren't won over by the NDP, but were also supportive of things like a $15 minimum wage. Polling at various points put that between 25 and 40% of Tory voters actually supported a $15 minimum wage on the liberal timeline. So that was a huge contradiction that we wanted to exploit, and I think continue want to uh, we, we want to continue exploiting. And I'll say this, that as Doug Ford is going around and attacking workers' rights right now, we can see the effect on his popularity. And the polling number shows 77% of people in this province support paid sick days. of people in Ontario support paid sick days. That's a huge jump from where we were. And 64% of Tories support paid sick days. Just at the moment that Ford wants to take those things away, a vast majority of Tories actually support having paid sick days. And we want to locate that contradiction inside the Tory base and drive a wedge through it to smash it. And Ford, one with 41%, his current polling number is 34% in terms of popularity, and that's actually lower than Donald Trump, <coughs> if anyone's paying attention. As we lead with the issues, we can actually exploit those kinds of contradictions, and we can actually keep building up our base. So that brings me to the sort of next part, which is, this is a marathon, not a sprint. I.e., we want to achieve legislative reforms, we want to build workers' power, that's not all gonna happen at once, and that Uh, The Bill 47 rollbacks, they're bad, okay? Taking away paid sick days. They're taking away equal pay for equal uh, work. They are taking away the new scheduling laws. They're freezing the $15 minimum wage. All those things are bad. But we also have to remember that... We, we do have some victories in there, and we should remember why we have them. One, that the four, we have a $14 minimum wage. That's a 22% jump in the last year in the minimum wage. That's a good thing. That's not going anywhere. Pell days, although they're, uh, they're more expanded for workers in workplaces uh, under 50, aka uh, before Bill 148, workplaces under 50 did not have any Pell days, now they have eight. Those Pell days, or they will have eight as of Tuesday. Those Pell days, that's a significant win, but it's a real problem that they got rolled back and that they're hived off uh, in the way that they are. And we also kept indexation, which is also a big, big, big tool. But the point here is that If we think about this in the long term, we're trying to use every opportunity to organize. As Bill 47 is like in the news, it's not that we're gonna roll over and die because there's no point in that. We wanna keep building the capacity and confidence of workers to fight, keep extending our networks. Just at the time that this bill is probably going to be passed, our networks outside, especially outside of the GTA, have grown probably doubled in the last three months, which is a very, very good thing. The challenge is, how do we keep that together going forward? When Bill 47 passes on Tuesday, the lesson can not be don't fight because you won't win, so just roll over and give up. We need to be able to keep those networks together and fighting, We're recognizing what we've lost, why we've lost it, and have a, a good analysis, but also something that is Uh, forward-looking. Now, I'll just say just what's next. Briefly, Is that the federal government in its omnibus bill has introduced Bill 148 reforms. Some of those things are like for equal pay for equal work. This is for federally regulated workplaces, so about 900,000 workers. Equal pay for equal work, three paid sick days, so the three paid Pell days, and there are also has a 10-month review on the $15 minimum wage. Now, why is that important? That's important, be- I mean, for the workers in federally regulated sectors, that's important. But it's also important because it extends the amount of people impacted right across the country, so it makes it more extensive. We now have every province but one has a Fight for 15 campaign in it. And that one is the like most useless province, PEI. <laughs> sorry, sorry, my, my partner's from PEI, so. <laughs> it's small, no one cares. Um, so but what's important about that is one of the core arguments that Ford used to say to roll back paid sick days is that nowhere else has this. Well, now everywhere else has this. And it's a good launching point to actually keep fighting for uh, things like paid sick days and also to make sure. All those same issues are election issues come the federal election next October. So we have openings to do that. And yeah, and otherwise I just think like for us in the fight for 50 and fairness, it is about those things that all the other panelists have identified is how do we keep building at our base? How do we draw out the contradictions within the class? And how do we keep fighting without getting demoralized? And that if we're only going kind of from triage to triage, like very kind of addressing some sort of terrible incident to terrible incident, we're gonna get burnt out and we're probably not gonna make the victories that we need to make. But if we actually kind of keep building at our base, keep building our capacity and confidence of workers that we work with, then I think we're more well positioned to make real substantive gains.
0: So now we have heard four different takes on strategies to advance social justice struggles. The two today, the two in episode one. These strategies using organizing and or legal avenues. And what I can tell you is that there are updates on all of these stories. We hope to check in with some of these guests at the end of this season and give you an update on safe injection sites in Moss Park, the social benefits regime in Ontario, Abbey's rights before the Human Rights Tribunal, and what is the situation for workers' rights in the province. I'll give you a preview. Things don't look great, but that's why we organize, and that's why we agitate and litigate. But more broadly for movement lawyers and community members, how do we think about these questions? And what do they mean for social advancement? One can say that organizing is a a thing of intrinsic value, consciousness raising. But I do think that law, for me at least, is a means to an end, to try to achieve the end of social advancement. I think there's a fear that too many satellite activists or satellite lawyers parachute into these movements, not paying homage to those who have come before, what struggles exist, and the nuances of particular communities. And I think what is needed and what we can hopefully build towards is a movement-centered lawyering model that puts primacy on stories and struggles in order to achieve social change. So that's today's episode of Jured. If you recall, that's the name of this podcast, J-U-R hyphen E-D. You can follow us on Twitter, J-U-R underscore E-D. Feel free to follow us also on your preferred podcast distribution network. We're on most of them. Reviews obviously help on Apple Podcasts, but I'm saying that because basically they say that on many other podcasts. I actually don't know if it helps or not. We have lots of other exciting material coming to you in the coming months. And, well, I'm excited. And you should be too. So stick around. And until next time.